the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You know, if you go to the average bookstore, and I realize you have to hunt them down these days, but trust me, they still exist. If you go to the church growth section or religious section, depending upon how your bookstore is organized, you'll find shelves there loaded with books on church growth. How to do it big, bold, brilliant, wide, and rapidly. But what if the idea of a section of books that took the opposite tenor, that instead of doing the big, bold, brilliant, wide, and rapidly, instead taught you how to do it slow, thoughtful, deep, and deliberate. You'd probably think the books were 90 to 100 years old, wouldn't you? I mean, after all, don't we live in a day and an age when everything that we do fast equates better? I mean, let, let's face it, we, we just, everything we do, the more that we can do, the more rapidly we can do it, that must be good. So if it applies to information, technology, food, cars, the internet, why not faith? Why not indeed? My guest tonight, I think, would argue that um, fast is not always better. In fact, there's much in terms of the history of the church that would demonstrate just the opposite, that the approach of being slow, thoughtful, deep, and deliberate also means a church that will be sustainable and a body of believers that will be deep in their faith, in their relationship with Christ. Christopher Smith is the editor of the Inglewood Review of Books and member of the Inglewood uh, Christian Church community outside of uh, Indianapolis, co-author of a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. And uh, Chris, great to have you on the program. Thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. I'm, I'm trying to think the, the pitch to your publisher on this. Uh, <laughs> I, there's got to have been either a stack of rejections or a few people that thought, clearly this guy has either lost his mind or um, uh, needs to have a serious talk with, with somebody, um, some church growth expert, because we know in 2014, fast is just the only way to do it. Right, yep. Um, actually, we were pretty fortunate. We found an editor that... Uh, liked the idea um, from the very outset, and he basically coached us through the the whole the whole process. So uh, we were very fortunate to find find an editor who thinks outside the box. That thinking outside of the box, as much as it might seem to be uh, in terms of the way most of people that are involved in the church growth movement or have a heartbeat for all of this, is in fact not all that outside of the box, is it? In fact, I think there's a lot of of evidence to demonstrate historically that for the bulk of the history of the church, uh, that thoughtful, slow, deep, deliberate approach is exactly what uh, got the church from uh, the time of Christ to where we're at today. 
Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's a long history of of um, of patient persistence. Uh, in the Christian community. Uh, but it, it tends to be, like you said, kind of more underground, <laughs> uh, not the mainstream of church history. This movement that we've seen, um, that, that seems as if, um, I don't know, it's, it's like franchising the kingdom of God like it were a McDonald's, you know. Sure, absolutely. Let's, let's put them up as quickly as we possibly can. I mean, nobody, got, and I'm not picking on McDonald's, but, but any fast food restaurant, no serious, thoughtful person who really is a foodie thinks of these locations as a spot for fine dining. We're going to um, walk away with a culinary experience. Uh, we, we know what they are for what they are. You want it fast, quick, uh, that's what you do, that you know that um, it's not going to be the kind of experience um, um, colonistically that you'll be thinking out above or, or sharing with others for years to come. Uh, it's seemingly just the opposite of what we want out of church, that we do want it to be something that is going to be deep and meaningful and hopefully profound and sustaining. Uh, and yet I'm, I'm wondering where in lies then this, this creep toward doing it fast, equating better within the church. Well, I think it's coming from the larger culture. Uh, one of the things that we do in the book is kind of look at the history, look briefly at the history of industrialization uh, and kind of the technological growth over the last 200 years, um, basically during the industrial and now the post-industrial age. Um, and basically, one of the, the side effects of that sort of rise of industry, and there's been, I mean, there's been some great things that have come out of that industry. I mean, many people were uh, saved from really, really uh, hard, backbreaking work uh, through uh, the rise of industry. Uh, but, but one of the things that has happened is that has kind of continued to grow and grow and expand uh, globally is that there's kind of been an expectation for for speed and for convenience uh, that has kind of crept into all of life, um, it, as you mentioned, into the food we eat and how we eat it, and, and also, uh, we argue in the book, into the way that we exist as churches. Um, and, and yeah, and we, I think it's mostly just kind of been uh, a lack of critical, critical thinking and acting um, in the ways that we engage the larger culture uh, that has kind of, uh, and, it, and again, it's kind of slowly infiltrated our churches. Uh, as you said in your introduction, uh, the church growth movement played a big part in that. And certainly there was, I mean, there was a good intent uh, in the church growth movement uh, of trying to, to grow churches to spread the gospel of Christ and bring more people into into our churches. Those are wonderful and noble noble goals. But but because of the culture of uh, industrialization, the culture of speed and efficiency, um, the, that, that movement uh, became focused more on the numbers than on the depth. Um, and and that's uh, that's the point at which it started to kind of turn and uh, move in a direction that's not not particularly helpful. We think. Well, and and uh, you know, not not healthy too in a spiritual standpoint in a lot of ways. I mean, let's face it; at the core, um, all of this dialogue, whether we talk about outreach, evangelism, church growth, um, discipleship, all comes down to one core issue, and that is the business of relationships. Oh, uh, whether we're talking about building relationships interpersonally between uh, family members and husbands and wives and kids and so on and so forth, building relationships with strangers to love them to Christ, uh, ultimately toward 
toward the, the, the penultimate goal of a restored relationship with the Creator Himself, which is, of course, what He sent His Son to do, that substitutionary work on the cross on our behalf, so that we might be reconciled into a restored relationship with Him. And yet, we look at the world around us, and if anything, it seems to be marked by the notion that lasting relationships are a thing of the past because we move so fast and right. and indeliberately and, and, and without a lot of, of thought or care. And as much as that has been the hallmark of of changing the way relationships are, then I got a little bit scary thinking, well, my goodness, if doing it rapid and, and uh, um, uh, big and bold has had an impact in, in so many ways on the sustainability of relationships, what does it say about the sustainability, so to speak, of our relationship with the very God himself? No, no doubt. And that's, uh, Craig, you've kind of hit on the reason that we actually chose the, the name Slow Church and not just uh, Slow Christianity or Slow Faith. Um, but, but we very intentionally chose the, the, the language of Slow Church because what we believe, like you were, for the reasons that you just stated, that uh, what God has been doing in the world and God continues to do in the world is, is largely centered around the gathering of the people. And this is something that began in Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even Jesus. Uh, when he started his ministry, uh, came of age and started his ministry, one of the first things that he did was to gather a community of disciples around him. And we believe that it's in community, in our churches, uh, that we that we can start to recover what it means to be in meaningful relationships um, if, we, if we're willing to slow down and be attentive to, to what we've been called to be. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I think you're absolutely right that that relationship is at the heart of what what God is doing in the world and what what the heart of what we're called into as followers of Jesus. So there's a little literal troubling aspect to this that this rapid results approach that we take today and it's everywhere it's pervasive everywhere within culture and and business and society and of course it's crept into church that it seems to be this focus on rapid results at the expense of long-term sustainability. And there's a number of layers in which this becomes very troubling, not only in terms of sustainability, for example, of a new church plant. How many churches come and go and come and go and come and go? And that's that really the way God wants us to, to do community, if at the core the church is really about the neighborhood or the community. And then the other question is, if there is such a profound impact on the sustainability of church, how can we not help but wonder whether or not that might have an impact on the sustainability of our relationship with God. Oh, not that he would flutter or fail, but that we, from our perspective, might be just inclined to give up at a moment's notice. I mean, let's face it, largely in the westernized church, we're we're not really accustomed to pain or sacrifice or um, agony. In fact, we work very hard to avoid all of that. Which is curious because the Bible says much about suffering for our faith and persecution for his namesake. A lot more to talk about. Christopher Smith is with us today. He's co-authored Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. We'll take a brief time out. In fact, let's not take it brief. We'll make it slow. <laughs> We've got traffic. Maybe you've got that slow experience in your life already today. Take a deep breath. And we'll return to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Talking today with author Chris Smith. He has co-authored with John Pattison a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. And uh, this breaches into so many aspects of our faith, of the sustainability of same, not just our faith, but also local congregations, um, the body of Christ. And, you know, I guess in a day and an age, as we've been suggesting, Chris, where we have seen the emphasizing of um, uh, quantity over quality, this has really been uh, almost disastrous at certain levels to every aspect of of faith within uh, Western Christianity, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, this is really, really broadly reaching. And, I mean, and honestly, it's part of the reason that, I mean, one of the things that we kind of have experienced ourselves and have seen elsewhere um, is simply that uh, we tend to compartmentalize our faith, uh, that our faith has become more and more uh, not pertinent to the rest of our life. What we do on Sunday is kind of separate, a separate thing from what goes on. Uh, in our in our home or in, at our office place, um, whatever that may be, um, and, and we we don't think that that's what uh, we have been called into. I mean, we think that God is reconciling all things in Christ, uh, and that that the wisdom of the gospel is is pertinent um, to our to our family life, to our work life, and then part of the problem is that we've kind of uh, kind of fragmented home from work, from church, from. Uh, from maybe other social activities or whatever, but um, and and those spheres of our lives don't uh, interact with each other very much. Um, and I mean, part of what we're encouraging as we slow down is to to allow God to to heal some of those uh, fragmentations and find ways for for our lives not to be uh, quite so fractured. And that fracture, that fragmentation, seems to be clearly an outgrowth of the emphasis on quantity over quality. I mean, let's face it, if we're left with a choice of either going deeper or going quicker, um, culture today has sort of um, programmed us. We have been uh, uh, almost like Pavlov's dog, trained to respond to the quicker, not realizing how much we're missing in the going deeper. I mean, is it any wonder that we compartmentalize then and we relegate God to a brief hour-long experience on Sunday mornings and maybe for, uh, you know, a half hour or so uh, Wednesdays, if, if he's that fortunate, because we don't see the value in the integration of our relationship with the Lord in every aspect of our life, in every day of our life, because let's face it, we've never perhaps ever seen the, what that means to, to be modeled in front of us. Sure. No, absolutely. Um I think that uh, I mean part of the part of the reason for that again is the the advertising culture uh, that we're in the midst of that that always uh, encourages encourages us to seek more 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 we need we need a new car we need a new house we need uh, a vacation uh, whatever whatever uh, the advertisers are selling um, but but the kind of the collective effect of that is always encouraging us to to desire more, 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 and what we need, I think, is a, is a transformation of our desires, um, 
uh, a transformation to 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 not desire more, but to desire to 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 go deeper in the the relationships that that we already have. Well, and doesn't it become a vicious cycle too? Because the more and more and more that takes us to a more shallower degree, it's sort of the the quick high, the quick fix um, in life at so many levels becomes terribly unfulfilling. I would suspect after yeah. a while, and so then you're you're motivated to go after more because at the end of the day you're you're trying to to obtain something that that is not a product of the the faster the quicker the more but of the slow and the deliberate and the deep oh absolutely absolutely one of the things that we focus on in a chapter later in the book is the the practice of gratitude of being thankful and i think that's that's one of the the ways that god has provided for us to kind of resist uh this or to to um to start to put us on a journey toward healing and, and being transformed out of this culture that always wants more and more and more to to learn to be grateful for for the things that uh, that God has provided for us uh, for the relationships that God has provided for us and and the, the resources that God has provided us with uh, both as individuals and as congregations um, and and I think if we the, the greater uh, that we learn to practice thankfulness, gratitude. Um, I think that we'll start to to see some see some transformation. It really comes down to the sense of being grateful, which causes you to pause and look at all that is around you. What's the old phrase about stopping to smell the roses? Oh, yeah. And we're, we're rushing down the street and along the way. Uh, we don't have time to capture the sights nor the fragrance because we're just too busy thinking about uh, what we're doing next, what we're doing tomorrow, what we're doing in 20 minutes. Um, I, I guess the big question is, since that sort of manic approach to life, Life is so inbred in so many of us. I mean, I would wonder, even as we're talking right now, and there are people that are listening to our conversation on the drive home who, even though they recognize the danger and the illegality of browsing text messages, are doing it as we speak because they just can't, simply can't wait to see what that text message might say. How, how do we get off of this roller coaster ride to pause long enough to say we need to do some serious introspection here about our priorities and where we give time? No, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, and I mean, just I mean, just the example that you gave of, of checking test ma- te- text messages while you're driving. I mean, that's a that's a potential uh, that has the potential of death for for you and and someone and others around you. Um, and uh, it's interesting that the Bible, I mean, kind of talks about uh, the connection between uh, the way of sin and death, and and. and and I think that that's, I mean, part of the consequences of of living too fast um, is, I mean, is ultimately uh, death. Um, and, and maybe uh, it's not always going to happen. Hopefully, it won't always happen. But but there's always that potential there uh, when we're trying to do too much and not being attentive uh, to what's going on around us, particularly in a culture where we like ours today, where we use heavy machinery like cars and and so forth and i mean there's the grip the risk is 
is significantly Well, higher. there's also, I think, a degree of risk, as I use that as an example from a spiritual standpoint, because as you talk about in the book, Slow Church, this culture of unreflective speed also means that we might be inclined to just kind of, at the surface, buy into any whim, any uh, doctrine that comes our way, because it sounds okay, or yeah, I've read a little bit of scripture, that seems to be in harmony, and so we don't take the time to research, we're, we're not fruit inspectors, we don't tr- test the spirits to see if they are of God, there, there are so many aspects of what we are warned to do in a slow, thoughtful, deliberate fashion, from a spiritual growth standpoint, from a relation with Christ standpoint, that is it any wonder that we have not only just a sloppy religion, sloppy relationships, but then uh, so often so many within the church today are just pulled to and fro at any pardon me, any whim of, of false teaching because it's a culture of unreflective speed. Sure. I mean, you go into a Christian bookstore, and then that's, that sort of sloppiness is uh, is reflected. I, I, I don't. I'm not going to name any particular names, uh, but but that sort of kind of. Uh, I mean, everything from prosperity gospel to uh, uh, self help sorts of stuff. I mean, it's all there, and it's all it's all really not that reflective. Um, it's just kind of a, a quick fix of what will make us feel good. If you've just tuned into our conversation, we're visiting today with Chris Smith, co-author of Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. We'll talk a bit about what this means, how we can slow down the pace, and what the benefits can be, not only in terms of our own um, family well-being and and mental health, but ultimately for spiritual well-being and the well-being of our communities. We'll come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking about slow church today, not just the book, but the entire notion. This is the the polar opposite of this uh, fast approach that we've taken to rapid growth that certainly does a lot in terms of, of sort of the quick um, flash in the pan, uh, brilliant moment uh, of success. But then, of course, leaves many questions pertaining to the sustainability of not just one's faith, but frankly, of the community, of the body of belief. And as we're learning from our guest today, co-author Chris Smith, um, quite frankly, this this rapid, fast sort of the uh, the franchise approach to Christianity doesn't do a lot in terms of um, spiritual depth of individuals, let alone the sustainability of the church. And maybe therein lies the problem that we're learning that the the rapid results today are in fact at the expense of long term sustainability. Yes, definitely, Craig. I mean, we see that, like you were saying earlier, that church plants uh, tend to have a lifespan of maybe a couple years. And also, I think part of the issue, questions of sustainability, um, one of the questions that doesn't get looked at so much uh, is, is the ways in which uh, churches move uh, from one neighborhood uh, to another um, and what the, what the impact might be of that sort of uh, transition uh, on the neighborhoods um, that are left. I mean, I live in an urban neighborhood in, here in Indianapolis, and we've kind of seen the effects, the sort of vacuum that's left uh, when a church uh, or any other institution or business, uh, but, but especially in this case in churches, um, when they move out of a neighborhood. Um, and uh, and it, it can be, it can be uh, pretty powerful, and it's something that churches don't think about a lot, about uh, what what has happened uh, in the places that they leave behind. Hmm. 
So that loss of commitment to a neighborhood, and oftentimes there's a disaster left behind because then what might have been uh, the only beacon of hope in a particular community, and this certainly has been very true in a lot of inner cities, um, sure. it completely uh, collapses, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yes, definitely. Definitely. It was, it's interesting. Our church, the church I'm part of, Anglo Christian Church here in, Indiana, in the near, urban near east side of Indianapolis, uh, we're 118 years old, uh, but we've basically been in the same place uh, for for all of that history. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, at kind of a low point in the size of our congregation, the history of our congregation, uh, we ha- were faced with the decision, do we stay in this neighborhood or do we move out uh, to the suburbs where a lot of our members are? And the leaders of the church decided at that point that it was very important for us to stay. And basically for the last 25 years or so since that decision, we've been on a journey of trying to, to understand what it means for us to be a church in this place since we made a very intentional decision to stay here. A lot of times churches will move because they feel overwhelmed by many of the problems that are facing a neighborhood and, quite frankly, maybe feel ill-equipped to be able to ascertain what those problems are and to best address them. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of what we've seen in the recent passing of Robin Williams, who is, um, because of his connection to the San Francisco Bay Area, has been sure. quite a, an ongoing topic here of the last couple of weeks. Uh, some folks might have seen um, comments made uh, the other night by David Letterman, um, who um, knew Robin early on in his career, and uh, Mr. Williams had been a guest on the Letterman show apparently about 50 times down through uh, the, the years, and at the end of his very emotional, moving tribute to him, uh, had made a remark about, well, if he'd only knew about how much pain Robin was in, and it dawns on me that we in the church maybe are guilty often of the same thing, that we are too busy and moving too fast to notice when others around us are hurting, the very ones that God would call upon us to bring healing to or hope to or his gospel to, and maybe, you know, what uh, what was remarked by David Letterman last night regarding Robin Williams is indicative of a place where a lot of us in the church are at today. We're just moving too fast to notice those around us that are really hurting. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I think you're, you're definitely hitting on something there, Craig. Um, that I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating to us is that, I mean, you just look at, you talk, we talked about earlier, a little bit earlier about the franchising uh, aspect of it, and you look at a McDonald's or you look at a Starbucks or a Home Depot or whatever, and those are those sorts of institutions look pretty much the same whether you're in San Francisco or San Antonio or wherever else. Um, and I think that a lot of times uh, churches can be that way. They can look and feel pretty much the same wherever wherever they are. And, they, and churches have kind of become almost um, uh, unattentive to uh, to the places uh, where they exist. Um, and again, that's part of the, the sort of fragmentation. Uh, churches have come to see themselves as kind of part of spiritual life, uh, not necessarily engaged in the life of the communities in which they exist. Um, and I, I think that that's, I think it's in that sort of engagement with the communities where we exist, where the, the wisdom of the gospel is, uh, and the, the call to to be peacemakers and all those other sorts of things that, that we're called to in Christ. Uh, that's where that witness is borne out uh, in, in engagement with with our neighbors. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that, that we, there are many ways that we've become unaware of the, 
the pain and suffering around us. And, you know, even closer to home, I mean, again, that, that rush means that there's a risk of well-being to family and our own mental health, our own spiritual well-being, because we're not taking the time uh, to go deep enough because uh, we're just not programmed that way. Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that I don't... We don't want to overstep here, but but it's interesting to me that there's a correlation uh, between our continuing to move faster and faster and and the rise in uh, mental illness, for instance. Um, I mean, I'm not saying necessarily that they're connected, but it's interesting that uh, that they seem to uh, follow very similar uh, curves. Um, is a lot of this also tied into not just a desire to do things faster and more instantaneous, but also coupled with this indicative of a lack of maturity that is maybe as a as a watchword, um, tremendously impatient and a culture where on an increasing basis we wish to avoid not only work but any pain. I mean, it used to be, you know, a, a good hard day's worth of labor mm-hmm. where you came home with tired muscles and, and completely beat that was you had a sense of satisfaction and reward about that and today it's almost as if that has shunned and so if we're not willing to to exercise our physical muscles and experience a little bit of you know stretching pain in the experience um i wonder if that's indicative of of the same thing when it comes to not willing being willing to spirit to exercise our spiritual muscles that we're afraid of avoiding pain in any aspect of life oh yeah absolutely i, I think that that's one of the things that we talk about in the book that i mean the way of Jesus uh, is the the way of compassion. I mean, just the incarnation itself of Jesus coming to earth uh, was an act of compassion. Jesus entered into all the pain and suffering, and the joys, of course, too, but but the pain and suffering of the human experience. And that's what we're called to do uh, with one another in our church congregations and with our neighbors. And I think that what we're seeing, I talked a little bit before about kind of the history of industrialization and how we've become more and more uh, impatient and have more greater and greater expectations for speed but one of the other effects of it is like you were saying that it, it conditions us to to want to avoid work and suffering you look at the rise of the in the mid 20th century the rise of the quote unquote labor saving device uh, and that's a one uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing i'm not saying that we should not use any sort of electrical gadget or whatever uh, but but we do need to be aware of what what the cost of that is and what if we're saving labor to what end are we saving labor um, and and the effect of that i believe is exactly what you were describing that we it, we we are having greater and greater difficulty entering into the the pains and sufferings of others because we've been conditioned to avoid pain and suffering at all costs and of course, the irony is that pain and suffering also translates into notions of persecution, um, and you know somehow the notion that we, as the church in America, are uniquely um, given a pass on the idea of pain and suffering or persecution, when the Scripture, of course, doesn't say that at all. And um, there is a dynamic that speaks quite heavily to uh, that lack of being willing to uh, to suffer for His name's sake, as Chris, Scripture calls us to, indicative too of this notion of kind of being uh, uh, the church. That's what's the old saying, 10 miles wide and an inch deep? Right. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again, I don't think that we should necessarily seek out persecution, but I mean, I think that there are ways that our desires for comfort uh, uh, kind of compromises our willingness to, to speak the truth in, in difficult situations, uh, whether that's in the public square or in our congregations. Um, and I think that has, that has uh, ramifications. 
Our conversation today with Chris Smith. He is co-author of a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. If you are someone who is a uh, student of uh, everything that is fast and rapid and you wish to overemphasize a, a quality, quantity rather over quality, this is probably not a book for you. If, on the other hand, you're somebody who would rather not go quicker in your relationship with God but go deeper, then this indeed can be a book that can be a tremendous eye-opener not only for your own relationship with Christ, but at the family level and at the community level. The book again, Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus, newly published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area, not in the rapid church growth section, though, I might add. <laughs> and, of course, on Amazon.com. And our thanks to co-author Chris Smith for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As much as money is so much a part of the topic of what's going on in the world and in our nation, it even filters down to our own personal lives. And, you know, ironically, when we think about it in in Western culture and in American society, I think um, in specific, um, we have a lot of ideas about money and the connection to money and masculinity and what that means. A lot of men, I think, feel as if they have been emasculated. Since uh, fall of 2008, when we saw the implosion of Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers at all, to see people who have lost their jobs, they've lost life savings, they've lost retirement dollars, they've lost their homes. Many of the things that particularly we as men, as the breadwinners of the family, tie into what we consider to be marks of success and what it means to be a man. And yet, as my next guest will suggest, um, the true meaning of what it is to be a man uh, is not measured by economic success, particularly when we look at this from a biblical or Christian worldview. He is Richard Simmons, author of The True Measure of a Man. He also serves as director of the Center for Executive Leadership, a Christian-based community resource, and joins us now by phone. And Richard, good afternoon and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Craig. Thank you. This has got to be a tough topic, and certainly men listening to our conversation here tonight who have lost jobs seen their livelihood and their identity in many cases go down the drain because of that, watch their fortunes erode away because of what's transpired on Wall Street, up to and including in some cases the loss of the very roof over their heads, the, the blow that that must mean to a man and his sense of, of, of self-worth and self-esteem must be horrific. Yeah, it is. And uh, what most men don't realize is the driving force in their lives, even Christian men, that so many of us, when it gets right down to it, get our sense of worth and identity um, and significance based on how well we perform out in the worst workplace. That's where we get, uh, I guess you could say that's how we define ourselves. And so when we run into uh, economic uh, calamity, economic problems, it can be devastating. And, you know, I, I think, to be fair, a lot of us guys, and I think myself included, if, if somebody stops me on the street or I'm, I'm talking to an acquaintance that I hasn't seen in, in many, many years, or somebody might ask you casually, so, so what do you do for a living? And, and we're inclined, at least I know I am, I'm more inclined to, to tell you who I am as opposed to what I do. In That's other words, right. I will probably say, well, I'm a radio broadcaster, I, ho- I host a talk talk show, things of this sort, um, as opposed to speaking about specifically the details of the job. 
Trump. Uh, is part of that uniquely a, a Western or more specifically American ideal? And if we wrap our identity and to a degree our sense of self-worth and value uh, into our livelihood and our ability to earn money and how successful we are at same, and then all of a sudden the carpet, through no fault of our own, is ripped out from underneath us, what does that do to a man at every level, not only economically, emotionally, but even spiritually? Well, what most men don't realize is that life for them is all about what I do as far as you know my, my, my work uh, and how successful I am at what I do, which then makes me wonder, what do you think about what I do? How do you rate what I do? Which then <clears throat> leads to what I think is the, the great fear that most men struggle with, even though sometimes they're not aware of it, is what if I fail at what I do? Uh, that failure, the fear of failure, is like a psychological death for most, most men. Um, what I'm finding is that men, in many instances, are not driven to succeed. They are driven not to fail. And this, this creates all kind of dysfunction in their lives. It cascades into so many areas, uh, including depression, um, and it's, uh, it's a real problem that men are just kind of coming to grips with, and it creates all kind of pain in their lives, and they don't want to tell anybody about it. Uh, we have this idea that, that if, if I'm experiencing pain, if I'm struggling, I am betraying my male identity, and we just want to hold it in and not tell anybody. Well, let's face it. I mean, this is part of what we do. We put, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, some do, uh, into their livelihood. They're the breadwinners. They, the man is, uh, you know, providing that uh, that covering over the household. Uh, the economic aspect of protection, I think, is is high on the agenda. We want to make sure that our families are well cared for, that they enjoy, you know, the finer things in life, that the kids can grow up with good education, someday send our daughters off to be married with a nice wedding, all of the entrapments that are tied into our ability to earn. So then when suddenly that is taken away from us, or we're suddenly faced by this overwhelming fear of failure, uh, what does that do? How does that impact our relationships with, with family, with spouses, and with the Lord? That is a great question. Um, what most people don't realize is that, you know, we have two basic psychological needs, and I explore this in the book. Women have a, primarily a psychological, we both have it, but women have more of a psychological need for security. Men, on the other hand, have a much greater need for significance, that my life matters, that my life uh, uh, is worth something. And therefore, uh, I've, I've seen this when I meet with couples who may have to sell their house. The wife is glad to do it because it makes her feel better about their financial situation. But for a man, it goes much deeper because his significance is threatened, his manhood is threatened, and it can just devastate him. And then it impacts the relationship in the marriage, his relationship with his children, and he, he spends so much of his time um, uh, in silence carrying a lot of pain around. It's like that old song by Simon and Garfunkel, I'm a rock, I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. And that's what most men think that they're supposed to be today, and it creates all kind of problems in their home. And so much of this, of course, uh, Richard, as you suggest inside the pages of the book, goes to the heart of what have essentially been false ideas about what it means to be successful. Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, that, that is a huge issue, and um, you know, the second half of the book is uh, focuses on how to help men be set free from this, and what you just uh, uh, mentioned is, is, is a major part of this. Uh, Blaise Pascal, 
said, the reason that we struggle with life so much is because we have false ideas about reality. And men in, in the modern world particularly struggle with this. We have false ideas about what is true masculinity. We have false ideas about what does it really mean to be successful in life. And we have false ideas about what is true wealth. What does it mean to really be wealthy? And so what men don't realize is how important it is to get um, our lives in harmony with what is true. Because as Jesus himself said, it's the truth that will set you free. And this, is, to me, is so important to be set free from what I call this success trap that we get so caught up in. Talk to us a bit about then what men need to do to, re, to recalibrate their thinking, so to speak. I mean, a lot of us, we, we not only have had this pounded into our heads since childhood, you got to get a job, you got to get educated, you got to go get a career, and we measure success based on, you know, how much money is in the bank and the size and the quality of the vacations that we take, all of these yardsticks, so to speak, that all comes down to finances and money, um, and we end up, I think as you're suggesting, is spending an awful lot of time pursuing an awful lo- a lot of lies. That's, that's correct. And, um, Craig, there are a number of things that I, I could say to you. Uh, I think, first of all, it's important to recognize that this is true of my life because at the heart of wisdom is just understanding yourself, understanding what makes you tick. Um, second uh, is uh, what I just, we talked about, understanding the lies of, of life that we've bought into. Uh, I talk at length about, you know, what is the object of life? If the object of life is to be wealthy and prosperous and comfortable, then economic misfortune or failure is going to devastate you. But if the object of life is the transformation of my character, the maturing of my soul, and knowing God personally, then the storms of life, the economic storms of life, can be a blessing based on the way I respond to it. But probably the most important thing, and I talk about, you know, focusing on the legacy that we leave behind, how that will impact us. But the most important thing is, is realizing this, that I get my sense of worth and value based on what other people really think about me. You know, if I perform well, then people think well of me. I win their approval. And so I spend so much of my time um, seeking to please them because that's the most important people in my life. That's the audience I'm trying to please. And my challenge to men is, what do you think would happen if Jesus is the most important person in your life, if that's where you get your sense of worth and value, because Jesus loves you, not based on your performance, but on who you are. You're of such great value to him because we're created in his image. And as believers, we're his children. And therefore, we have great value. It's like that verse in Ephesians 2.10 that says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which means work of art. We are God's masterpiece. We are of great value to him. And if a man can really get that into his life, it will change him radically. What's the starting point? Uh, Obviously, I think a lot of self-introspection. I mean, a lot of guys, when they go through challenges, they're facing uh, the prospect of of losing a lot. They're overwhelmed uh, to a great degree by by fear. I think oftentimes we we, uh, then operate or function out of a sense of panic and not really reality-based. And guys are saying, well, it's time to, you know, brush up the resume, Richard, and, (laughs) you know, get ready to start all over again. Do we need to maybe get reevaluated, not as we prep for the next big interview with the potential employer, but rather to, to then look at it as you're suggesting from what are the kind of questions, not that the, the, the prospective employer would be asking me across from the table, but what are the kind of questions that God would be asking me? 
Yeah, I, I think the, the the starting place is, uh, and you kind of uh, hinted at it, is we, we have to reorient our thinking and our approach to life and our approach to work. You know, it, it's it, it, it's not so much um, uh, how much money I make. It's, you know, what is God calling me to do with the rest of my life? Uh, you know, that's why I think if a man really starts thinking about his legacy, um, you know, when his life is over, what will his life have been all about? And when you begin to think in those terms, you don't get so caught up in, uh, you know, the amount of money you make. You really want to seek to, to uh, do work and, and, I guess you could say, do with your life what will have the greatest impact on others and what will advance the kingdom of God. Ultimately, the true measure of a man not being based on the size of your uh, portfolio, your bank account, the size of the home that you live in, but but rather ultimately on uh, the measure of your relationship before God. Richard Simmons, the author of The True Measure of a Man. Information, by the way, on the book, either through Amazon.com or through Richard's website at thetruemeasureofaman.com. That's thetruemeasureofaman.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.